Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll invite you to go ahead and grab your pew Bible or if you have a Bible on your phone to do that. Um, our reading for today is the Gospel in Luke, but I'm going to go on, uh, I'm going to rewind a little bit in front of where the Gospel begins in our bulletin, so I want to make sure you have your Bible with you. To me, this is an interesting set of verses because Jesus is telling a parable, and he teaches parables all the time, but there's something interesting in this one. The, the thing that he's trying to do is only really described well if you understand the context. He gives a parable within a parable. Have any of you guys ever seen like the, the movie Inception before? It's like where you have a dream inside of a dream and you go deeper and deeper into like, you know, fourth and fifth level dreams. And the whole reason for that Inception that they do in that movie is to plant an idea into the minds of the person that they're going into his dreams. Um, something about money, I forget the whole plot point. But, um, but that's sort of what Jesus is doing here, except he's doing it not with dreams, but with parables. He has a parable kind of within a parable here where he's trying to get an idea across to the people who are listening. So before we dive into that idea, let's talk about first what it is that Jesus is trying to do. What message is he trying to convey and to whom? And to answer that question, you have to actually go back to chapter 19 of Luke. Chapter 19, verse 45, we learn that Jesus is in the temple. He's in Jerusalem in the courtyard of the temple. And he's teaching and he's preaching and he's doing miracles and is doing his Jesus thing, right? And there's two groups of people there. Well, technically there's more, but we'll talk about two. There's the group of people who... They are there with Jesus, and they're interested in what he has to say. They want to see him do things. They want to learn from him about the kingdom of God. They approach him hungry to hear what he has to say. Then there's a second group of people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the elders and the leaders of the church, the chief priests, right? These guys, you know well from other stories about Jesus, they're skeptics. They don't like what Jesus has to say. They don't like what he's trying to do. They don't like the political and cultural upheaval that he's causing. They want to be rid of him and his influence. And they are there too. And they are asking, what in the world is this Jesus guy doing? Standing in the temple courtyard, teaching about God. He's not trained for this. He doesn't have a certification to do this. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not a Pharisee. Why is he talking about God in the holy place? And so that's kind of what they question him about. They, they try and challenge him and says, who gives you the authority to teach in the temple? And Jesus kind of does this interesting thing. Instead of answering the question, he asks them a question. He says, I'll answer that question if you can answer this question. Where did John's authority to baptize come from? Okay? And the Pharisees, they have an answer, but they don't want to give it. Their answer is, well, it comes from man, of course, because they don't want to acknowledge, like we do, that John was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And so they think that John's authority was a false authority, but they also know that the people who were there, who were hungry to hear Jesus, were also hungry to hear what John the Baptist had to say, and they followed him, and they thought he was from God, and so they couldn't just outright say, oh, he's from man, because he, they would have gotten, you know, run out on a rail by the people who were there. Okay, they would have gotten chased off. 
And so they don't answer the way they want to answer, and they can't answer in the, in the negative either and say, well, John's authority comes from God, because then Jesus would be like, well, you know, John said some stuff about me, so if John's from God, maybe, you know, you got your answer there. But they don't answer back, and they say, well, we don't know. And John, Jesus says, well, if you're not going to answer me, then I'm not going to answer you. And then he proceeds to answer them, but not directly. He does so indirectly. He tells them where his authority comes from, not by saying, my authority comes from God, but by telling a parable. And so he enters into this parable, and this is where our reading picks up, the parable of the tenants. He goes and he says to the people, both groups of people, the Pharisees and the skeptics and the chief priests on one side and the the hungry people ready to learn from Jesus on the other, he says this parable. There's a man who planted a vineyard. He owns a vineyard. Okay? I'm not going to read every single verse here word for word because we just did that. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it as we go. So the, the man owns the vineyard and he is hiring or has hired some tenants, some people to oversee, take care of the vines, keep animals and critters and bugs away, and, and make sure that the, the crop is ready to harvest when the season comes. And then he goes away. He kind of leaves the vineyard to go, to do its thing in the background while he does other things. He comes back around the time that it's time to collect on the harvest, and he says, hey, I'm ready for my fruit. And so he sends a servant to the, to the vineyard where he has the tenants there and to talk to the tenants and say, I'm, I'm, I'm the master of this vineyard and I'm here to collect on it. And they take this servant who s- says he's from the master and they beat him up and they throw him out and send him back empty-handed. The master says, that's concerning. I'll send another one. So he sends a second servant. He goes in. This time, they escalate, they intensify the mistreating of the master's servants. And they don't just beat him up, but they actually treat him shamefully. They mock him, they do unspeakable things to him, and then they kick him out and send him away empty-handed. And the master says, that's really not good. Maybe I'll send a third. Sends a third servant. The servant enters into the vineyard, the tenant's take this guy and they grievously wound him in the flesh. And then they kick him out and send him away empty-handed. And you would think that the master of the field at this point would get get the point that they're not going to listen to him. So he says, I'm going to go get rid of these guys. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my one and only beloved son to these guys. Maybe they'll listen to him. Now, It sounds absurd to some degree, but this shows the kind of love that God has for us, right? Remember, this parable is a parable, but frankly, this parable is not hard to decipher what's going on. There's some parables where you can dig and dig to get to the meaning. This one that's like right on the surface. Who's the guy who owns the vineyard? It's the big guy. It's God, right? Who's the son? It's the son, right? Who are the tenants? Well, the, the, the vineyard itself is God's promise to his people. So the, the tenants are the people who keep that promise. So that would be the people of Israel, right? Who are the servants who are sent? Well, they are the prophets who come carrying God's word to tell the people who are tending the garden, the Jews, to get their situation right, get with God, uh, repent, 
be forgiven, receive his good gifts, and repeatedly they deny the prophets. Okay? It's not a really deep parable by any stretch of the imagination. It's pretty simple. So simple, in fact, that in the end, the Pharisees know exactly who Jesus is talking about. Okay? So, we get to this point, and the owner of the garden says, I'm going to send my beloved son. Maybe they'll listen to him. So that's Jesus coming into the world. He's prophesying about the kind of death he will die, where he goes into the garden, into the vineyard, to collect the fruit of the people, to collect the fruit of the lives of God's people, to say, you are created for a purpose. What's the purpose? To make good fruit. Instead of making good fruit and and giving it to God, what the people in the garden do is they kill him. They take him outside the city, and they kill him. They take the Son of God, they take him outside the city, they nail him to a tree and crucify him. It's very clear to us, but they would have had to go, hmm, that's strange, I wonder what that's all about when Jesus first told this. They think by killing him, what will happen is that they will inherit the master's vineyard for their own. How absolutely ridiculous is this? I know I'll go kill the son of a Fortune 500 company and then I'll be, you know, right as rain, right? How absurd is that? That's not how inheritance law works, right? If that was the way it worked, we'd be basically like in the Thunderdome constantly trying to figure out how to, you know, get more weapons to defend ourselves and get rid of as many rich people as possible. That'd be absolute misery. And that's obviously absurd, not the way that it actually works at all. But these people are so twisted. These tenants are so twisted, so sinful, so wicked, they think this is going to happen. And it's not. They're deluded. Okay? And so, Jesus gets to the end of this and says, he kind of invites us as the hearer to step into the shoes for just a minute of the vineyard owner. What would you do at this point? You have no one else to send. You sent your servants... You sent your own beloved son, and they all rejected them. They all rejected them, even to the point of killing the son. So what do you do? Well, the sensible thing to do in verse 16 is he will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. At this point, we finally hear something back from the crowd. They didn't chime in when the first servant was abused. They didn't chime in for the second or third. They didn't chime in and say oh, how ghastly it is when they, when they kill the son. We have to get all the way to the point now where they receive the threat of the parable. The threat of the parable is that the people of God are so wretched and twisted and sinful and they've rejected his messengers and they're prepared to kill his son very soon. And the thing they're upset about is that the, the, the garden owner, the vineyard owner, might have the, the absolute audacity to kick out the tenants and find other ones. And so they say, oh, God forbid that the, the vineyard owner would find another person to tend his garden other than the person who killed his son and sent his servants away. That's the part that they are offended by because they realize what this means. They realize this parable is not that deep, that they're the ones who, as the people of God, are tending to the garden, and they're getting ready to be evicted. And that the message of God's covenant promise is about to be extended to people beyond just the cultural, ethnic Jewish people. 
That's what they're offended by. by. by no means should God do that. By, by no means should God send the promise onward to others. That's the part that they speak out against. And it just shows the, the mixed priorities that the people, uh, the, the, the leaders of the, of the Jewish uh, religious movements and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, how confused and twisted their, their viewpoint is. And so then it says, Jesus looked directly at them. Okay? Now this, this word directly at them in English is kind of like I'm looking directly at you guys right now. That's not what this means. This is like, this is in, an intense staring down into your soul. Like, think of a detective sitting on the opposite side of a convicted criminal, watching every single move that is made, every single twitch, every single eye flutter, every single emotion exhibited, I'm catching it. And Jesus looked into them and through them. And at this point, he says to them, then what is the meaning of that which is written? And then this is where the parable within a parable kicks in, and you kind of go, whoa, where did that even come from? Why is he talking about stones and things now? Why is he talking construction? We were just in, a, in an agricultural metaphor, now we've shifted over to a construction metaphor, and this is why context is so very important. Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people who know the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah has a prophecy, or a, a parable, very similar to the one Jesus just told where God prepares a vineyard to produce good fruit for his people. Before he produces, before he sets up the vineyard, he cleans out the rocky rubble to make way for smooth, you know, fertile soil to grow crops in. And he, he takes stones and he throws them out, and one of the stones that's rejected or thrown out is the cornerstone. So in this next section, he says, what is the meaning of that which is written? And then he quotes... The psalm, which refers back to that parable, that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay? It's become the cornerstone. And this is where it shifts from an agricultural metaphor to a building one, where we see that Jesus is saying here something powerful about what they just objected to. They just objected to the fact that God might have the audacity to change his, his plan of salvation to go through the people of Israel and extend it outward to all of the nations. And Jesus is saying, what then is the meaning of this, that, it, that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? He's looking into the eyes of those who would accuse him of lacking the proper authority of God. And he's showing through his absolute authority in the word that he is that chief cornerstone. And then he looks at all the crowd, those who are hungry to hear what he has to say and those who have no interest in it and want to get rid of him. And he says these words in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And you say, uh, that doesn't, what does that even mean? Does that just mean everyone is doomed? Are those really our only two options when we come into contact with Jesus, the chief cornerstone of our faith? That we either are either broken to bits or crushed underfoot? Yes, actually. That's challenging. 
This is why that parable within a parable actually shows the teaching of Jesus' authority. Jesus is an immovable, massive, implacable, unchangeable stone. He does not bargain. He is not neutral. He can't be changed or convinced to change. He is absolute in his authority and in his power. A massive stone that when we contend with it, we can't win. We can't do anything with it. We are either crushed by it or broken upon it. And this is really interesting language, and it doesn't make sense until you go back and realize there's two groups of people Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the people who are ready to listen and learn from him. And he's talking to us as well, and hopefully we're in this camp, ready to learn and hear from him, and not this camp, people who are, who are skeptical about his authority. Because that's exactly why he gave two options. When we see a massive stone, there's two things we can do. We can either try and contend with it and say, move, and be stubborn and say, this is my way of doing things. I want to do things the way I plan. I want to exert my own authority over my life. And in that instance, the stone itself crushes us. It obliterates us. It grinds us into a fine powder and then we blow away into the wind, no longer even having an existence or an identity that matters. That's one potential way to contend with the stone. My contention for you is that's not a very good way to do things. Instead, we approach the latter. People over here who are hungry to hear God's word and to heed his promises, but also acknowledge their sinfulness and repent, what they do when they approach the stone is they say, I can't change you, stone, but I can, I can be changed by you. And so they cast themselves upon the stone like a pot falling from a great distance upon a hard stone, and what happens? They shatter. And that's really what happens when we meet Christ. When we meet the reality of what Christ is, that he is unchanging, he is powerful in his ultimate authority, he is good and virtuous and right, and we are not. We're the opposite of those things in our sinful nature. We are resistant to that rock. We have rejected it in our sinful natures. We are just like those tenants in the vineyard. But Christ says what, what you do is you don't try and change the stone and thereby get crushed by it. What you do is you cast your life upon the stone and yes, you will shatter. You will break. Your sinful nature will be violently destroyed. Your sinful nature, that old Adam within you, will be violently drowned in the waters of baptism. That old man within you, that sinful nature will be violently ripped from you by Jesus Christ on the cross. And what is left over will not resemble the former. What is left over will be something then that is shaped and molded by the stone itself. Something that's made useful in a construction project. Not a clay pot, but something truly good something useful and strong. 
Now, I'm reminded of, as we read through this transformation process, I'm reminded of uh, our epistle lesson for today, actually. Paul is someone who comes into mind as a person who truly made that transition from the old man trying to contend with the stone of Christ, being, being broken and shattered upon it, and then being transformed into something new. When you think about what he writes in the epistle, he says, I consider everything in my life to be garbage except for my identity and relationship in Christ and my, and my new life which has been given to me to <clears throat> take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Imagine Paul, a Pharisee, Saul, a, uh, a chief religious leader in the, in the tradition may have been standing there listening to Jesus as a skeptic trying to deny his authority. We don't know that for sure, but he was of that ilk, of that party. And he hears Jesus' words and would likely deny them, realizing that they're about him. But then, as a Pharisee, he is living his life persecuting Christians, killing them, making sure that they're arrested and thrown in jail, And along the road, he hits the cornerstone, and he shatters upon it. Everything about his life, his identity, his education, his intelligence, everything that he was, this young, up-and-coming religious leader amongst the Jews, ended. It was broken, shattered, and scattered. And then, as he's on the road and Christ says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything changed for him. He went blind, he was healed, and at that moment he was changed. Christ reformed him, fashioned him into something that was new. Something that no longer resembled the old man, but instead was a new creation. And he took the message of Jesus Christ and fulfilled the part that he might have argued about and said, by no means should that be the case. God forbid that he would carry the good news of salvation through someone else, some other tenant in the vineyard. God forbid that should happen. Now Paul is the chief leader of that movement of trying to introduce God's gospel promises to everyone else around the whole world. He's at the forefront of that mission. And he's living his entire life and his entire identity and purpose or towards that goal. That's life transformation. Uh, After my 8 a.m. service uh, sermon, Russ came up to me and said, that reminded me of something too. And it was good enough that I was like, let's put that in the sermon. That's good. So in the first season of the television show, The Chosen, if you've seen that, raise your hand. There is a scene where Mary Magdalene um, has a conversation, I think it's with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And uh, Nicodemus had seen uh, Mary Magdalene uh, as a devil, a demon-possessed uh, woman of ill repute who had no hope, no future, was utterly destitute and broken, sees her a couple of days later and she is completely new, completely changed, has hope, her life looks different, she is made a, a new creation. And he says, what happened to you? And this is her response. She said, I was one way, And now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. 
Mary was that way. She confronted, she had a life that confronted the solid rock, the cornerstone of Christ, and her life was shattered upon it. It was broken on that rock. It was changed, and then it was made new into something different and good. And that is what we as Christians are called to do, this process of putting to death the old man by repentance, by confession. We, we confront the cornerstone of Christ. We acknowledge we cannot change or move him. We cast ourselves upon him. We cast our hopes and our dreams, our lives, our very identities upon him, and he reshapes them into something good. And so when Jesus is challenged in his authority, he uses this twofold parable within a parable to show us he had better have all authority on heaven on, or, and on earth, or else there is nothing which will remake us in its image. We are the church. Christ is the cornerstone. He changes our lives and makes us into something useful, a building material, a stone to be added to support all the others. Amen. Let's pray. We thank God. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. And we pray that you would simply remind us of your promises to us. That you would help us to approach you humbly. That we might be changed by you. That our old nature and our sinful ways might be put to death. Destroyed violently. Broken upon the cornerstone that it might be made into something new in your image. And so we give you thanks this day that you do not abandon or desert us, but rather that you have won it all for us. Won salvation, forgiveness, and a new life in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.